can't really blame him. It's only natural to see a set of keys sitting in a neat pile with someone else's phone and Bible and guitar and labeled children's Sunday school art and think, they must be my men buskies that I didn't bring with me today. I got us lost in the Rocky Mountains this summer. I took a wrong turn. I ended up not only in a different national park, but in a different province altogether. <laughs> About an hour later, we arrived in a little settlement called Field. <laughs> it's the kind of place where people have more fingers than teeth. And with no shops as far as the eye could see, you could only assume that their diet consisted largely of tourists. So we took a quick U-turn, and about an hour later, we were back somewhere approximating civilization. Again, I was in the bad books. About six years ago, we lost my son, Ezra. I was after church one day, and he was missing. We lived in the ghetto, um, as close to the ghetto as Calgary had. The SWAT team used our church as a base of operations. My neighbor's houses were shot up. One of my youth leaders had a gun held over their head. It was a fairly dodgy neighborhood, and we were terrified. For 25 minutes, we searched the building, the estate, the neighborhood around, the train station, which was next door. Eventually, he showed up. When you lose something that matters, you look for it. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us three stories about lost things. Things which were immensely valuable to their person. A sheep to their shepherd, coin to its owner, and later on a son to his father. How we respond to losing something depends very much on how precious it is to us. What Jesus reveals in these stories is a Father God who relentlessly pursues that which is precious but lost. And that to Almighty God, Creator, the Holy and Perfect One, there is no created thing more precious than that which bears His image. It's you and which is me. As John Stott said, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. And we know this. We hear this in church all the time. We know that human beings have this inherent value. We can recite all the greatest hits from the scriptures. You know, Genesis 1, we're made in the image of God. <coughs> Psalm 139, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians chapter 2, we are God's handiwork, created for good works. And this truth is actually the point of tension in the passage that we just read. The Pharisees and the scribes are outraged at Jesus' engagement with those being lost. These people are unclean, they're sinful. You can't spend time with them, think of your reputation, Jesus. And we often caricature the Pharisees as comic book villains, which is anything but the truth. The reality is they're not that dissimilar to us. In our worst moments, in our sin and brokenness, and in our hurt, we quietly question the value of others. We look past certain people or individuals or, or groups who just maybe we 
to secretly wish would remain lost. Or maybe they would just get lost. This is the toxicity of the culture that we live in right now. I met a homeless guy at a Walmart. I didn't have any money to give him, but I could give him some time, so I did. And he told me that he'd been there for hours, and I was the first person that spoke a single word to him. In the early stages of the war in Ukraine, a member of our weekly prayer gathering would ask God time and time again to kill Vladimir Putin. Not bring about repentance, not bring him to justice, just kill him. On Thursday morning, when the news of Queen Elizabeth's fair health broke, and the royal family were rushed to Balmoral, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University tweeted, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. In our brokenness, in our hurt, in our sin, we wish some people were just lost. As many of you know, I, I spent my formative years in a brethren assembly. Uh, we were an open brethren, quite as open as Fort Knox, but to be <laughs> fair to them, it was a church full of wonderful people who really put the fun in fundamentalists. <laughs> <laughs> Much of who I am was shaped by my time there. But I did, and do, have some significant issues with some of the theology and attitudes that were helped. One such difficulty is the primacy of, and I quote, protecting your witness when you've heard something similar. And I wholeheartedly agree with the radical pursuit of holiness. But this has less to do with our freedom and formation into Christ-likeness through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and far more to do with the neo-pharisaic attitude of avoid these people, places, and things that might make you look bad. And this is not the light of the shepherd. In our worst moments, in our own hatred and hurt and apathy, we are blinded to the humanity of the other. We see them as an enemy to be vanquished, not a lost sheep to be brought back into the fold. In other instances, our desire to remain and maintain a spotless reputation overshadows the need which we can clearly see in front of us. People desperately need to be loved. Jesus responds to this attitude in verse 7 by saying, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who need no repentance? You hear the sarcasm there. As Tom Wright says, try saying that sentence with a smile and a question mark in your voice, and you will hear what Jesus intended. The truth of the gospel is Jesus beautifully displays to the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes is that all of sin. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, but all are welcome. Following the way of Jesus will take us directly to the margins, to those whose company might hurt our reputations. 
This is not a call to validate everything under the sun. We must never affirm sin as wholesome or even permissible. But following Jesus and taking his mission seriously inevitably joins us with him in eating with sinners, sharing the love of God with them, inviting them into the family of God, and bidding them go and sin no more. Our reputation should never be more important than those whom God cares for. Following Jesus to the margins rather than jeering at the sidelines requires courage. And it requires a clear theology of who we are and who God is. So who are we? We are the sheep. We are the fond ones. We are the ones who are no longer lost. We are the ones who can say with Paul, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. We are the ones who can say with the teacher that life without Christ is meaningless, utterly meaningless. And we are the ones who must recognize that the only difference between the 99 and the 1 is that that one sheep hasn't been found just yet. But the shepherd is out there looking. And how amazing for the tax collectors and the sinners to hear this story, to hear that the shepherd of Israel is here for them, that they are not excluded, that they are not abandoned, that the promise of God in Ezekiel 34 is for them. I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places they have been scattered. And the beauty of Psalm 23 and the promise of soul restoration can be theirs too. And who is God? He's the sovereign king to whom all things already belong. The shepherd was just out. The shepherd was not just out collecting random sheep, <coughs> which, by the way, is an apocryphal story about the origin of my name, Armstrong. Scotsmen snatching sheep across the border from the English and bringing them into their homeland with their strong arms. That's just a besides the way. The shepherd was not just collecting random sheep. The sheep belonged to the shepherd. The coin to the woman. The son to the father. By all accounts, we belong to God. All things and all people. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the Lord of all. And he is, as Jesus reveals in this story, the pursuer. The one who seeks and saves <coughs> that which is lost. Leon Morris tells of a traditional motif in rabbinic writings of a man seeking a lost coin. The question often asked, if a man seeks for a lost coin, how much more should he seek for the law? Jesus plays with this idea. And the audience are immediately captured by the twist of a woman seeking this time. They know that Jesus has something new to say. So they listen up. And what they hear is that God is the one that seeks and is seeking for that most valuable and precious thing. Ezra was a baby. 
Janine went by one night and she entrusted bath time to me. I should not be entrusted with anything, let alone a baby and a bath full of water, but I did my best. That little baby bath, I filled it up, put it on the living room floor, and stick number one. I put a baby bath on carpet. <laughs> I lifted my son, smiled at me, I smiled at him, placed him in the water, and he peed everywhere. <laughs> I debated, can I wash my son in this? And decided no, so I took him out, I emptied the bath out, I cleaned it, I refilled it, I brought it back in, I had very stern words with him. Picked him up, put him back in, and well, let's just say the second time was worse than the first. <laughs> tossed him away, tossed the water away. I didn't really throw him, don't throw babies, guys. Cleaned the bath, refilled it, brought it back, Again, we spoke, cleaned him, actually then barfed on himself. <laughs> this is a true story. Um, time and time again, I had this task, clean my son. And regardless of what challenge came, I was getting it done. I was relentless in my pursuit of taking my son from a place of filth to a place of cleanliness. And our shepherd does the same. He pursues us relentlessly through the highs and lows of life, through the filth that we drag ourselves through, through the hatred that we foster, through the hurt that we hold, through the unforgiveness. But he does. Shepherd goes into the open country and he seeks until he finds his sheep. The woman lights a candle and she sweeps and sweeps until she finds her crumb. Finally, Jesus finishes both stories with this beautiful truth that there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. When repentance happens, earth and heaven come together as God intended. Joy erupts in the heavenly places and permeates into our lives. Our fullest experience of heaven on earth is when we can be one sinner to Christ. This is when we experience the joyful and hopeful heart privilege this summer. I've seen several of my young people come to Christ for the first time. I've seen one of their dads come to Christ for the first time. Of them coming home from a camp and telling their family what had happened to them and their brothers and sisters coming to Christ for the first time because of the joy that they held. Of on day one of my intern meeting a man who had just given his life to the Lord, who did not even know, just like a coin doesn't know anything, did not even know that he was lost until God spoke. 
and call them home. Heaven meets earth in these moments, and we celebrate with the angels, and we celebrate with the Godhead. Richard Foster once said, celebration is at the heart of the way of Christ, and it's in these moments that we live in that. Let's draw things to a close because I ran out of notes a little while ago. Wherever we are today, whether we have been fine but we feel a little bit lost again in the midst of everything, know that your shepherd is still pursuing you. Whether you feel like you've never been fine, really, know that the shepherd is there. Know that everything practically waiting for you to come home. Whether you've held that attitude of maybe I just won't go to those people, know that by God's Holy Spirit, our hearts can be softened. We can follow the footsteps of Jesus to the margins and rejoice with heaven as we see people come to him. Let us be an intentional, missional presence 